0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here, as well as a uh, senior editor at the Weekly Standard. This afternoon we're going to be discussing Egypt after Sisi's election, greater domestic turmoil or stability and growth. And the panel, uh, the two panelists to the left of me, that really we could not have put together a a, a more interesting and more fantastic panel between the two of these gentlemen. to my immediate left is my colleague here at Hudson and uh, a dear friend, Samuel Tadros, the senior fellow here at the Center for Religious Freedom. At Hudson here, he is researching the rise of Islamist movements in the Middle East and the implications for religious freedom and regional politics. Sam is the author of Motherland Lost, the Egyptian and Coptic Quest for Modernity, uh, which I can't recommend highly enough. I've written about it in the past. I have interviewed Sam for it. It's an invaluable book. Um, about modern Egypt. And Sam's most recent book is the uh, essay, which is no longer forthcoming. It's here. It's called Reflections uh, on the Revolution in Egypt, available from Hoover Institution, and I highly recommend it. Um, To Sam's left is Muqtad Awad, a research associate with the National Security and International Policy team at the Center for American Progress. His work focuses on Islamist groups. Middle Eastern politics, and U.S. foreign policy toward the region. In the fall of 2011, he completed an internship with the Office of Egypt and Levant Affairs in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. And I want to recommend to you, uh, Mukhtar and his colleague at Center for American Progress, Brian Ketulis, have left their most recent report, their organization's most recent report on Egypt. Uh, I believe it's outside here. I have not had a chance to thank you. Thanks. Not had a chance to look at it yet, but I'm I'm quite sure it's excellent. We've had uh, been honored to have Brian here on panel uh, a panel in the past. Very um, very instructive and informative time, and I'm sure this I'm sure this pamphlet is wonderful. Um, we're going to be this afternoon. There's an awful lot to cover regarding uh, regarding Egypt. The uh, elections are <clears throat> forthcoming. I believe the first round. Is the 26? Is that correct? The first one is the 26. This panel is, <clears throat> this panel is premised on the notion that the, uh, the outcome of the election is a foregone conclusion. The uh, the man known as Field Marshal uh, Field Marshal Sisi, who has resigned his commission, <coughs> and is now running for president, will almost uh, certainly become the next president of Egypt. The question is, what does that mean for Egypt? What will it mean for U.S. Egypt relations? What will it mean for Egyptian foreign policy? What will it mean for the Egyptian economy? What will it mean for the various confrontations that Sisi is engaged with, with the Islamist movement, Uh, both the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, whose member he (laughs) removed from the presidency last July, uh, President Mohamed Morsi, uh, as well as a very violent uh, and increasingly bloody insurgency in the Sinai. So as you can see, again, we have quite a bit to go through. I, I suspect we're not going to touch on everything. Um, but to start it off, I'm going to ask Sam to give a uh, give his general introduction and then Muhtar. And then we're going to open it up for a, uh, a conversation and touch on a number of issues. And then at the end, probably um, at about quarter of two, I'll ask for some questions from the audience if any of you would like to ask our panelists something. In the meantime, thank you again for being here. And uh, Sam, if you would uh, kick it off.
1: Well, thank you, Lee, for the introduction. Uh, To begin a discussion of Sisi's Egypt or how Egypt will be under his rule, one has to begin by, what do we know about the man himself? Until very recently, one could say that we don't know anything, an exceptional rise in office uh, First under the Mubarak, in the last months of Mubarak's rule, he becomes the head of Egyptian intelligence. Then, as part of the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, governing Egypt, ruling the country after Mubarak's resignation. And then appointed suddenly as defense minister by the man he would ultimately remove, Mohamed Morsi. And then now his rise to Egypt's presidency, as Lee has said, something that we take for granted and that will happen no matter what. But who is this man? What do we know about him and about his character? How will he approach governing a country like Egypt that is, to say the least, full of problems and uh, facing enormous challenges? First, I'd like to begin by how the man views himself, walking through how he views Mm -hmm. his candidacy, how he views the idea of governing the country. What's his worldview in general? And I think that's perhaps the best way to start talking or beginning a conversation about how actually he will answer the various challenges that he will face. The man is deeply religious. We know that both from him and from those who have met him, especially the Muslim Brotherhood. During SCAF's tenure, he was the person that was dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood from the side of the military. Mohamed Morsi, the man who would become Egypt's president, was extremely impressed by his religiosity. He would pray often. He would use religious terms always in his talk with Mohamed Morsi. This was not an act of someone trying to impress his interlocker on the Brotherhood side. This is actually how Sisi views himself. His religion, however, is a bit different from the sense of how the Brotherhood approached their religion. For Sisi, religion is something that is much more spiritual. Perhaps the word Sufi comes to mind when one views how he uh, mentions, for example, his two encounters with God. God spoke to him twice, for example. There's there's this sense of uh, that we see in in historically in Sufi orders, much more than we'd see in political Islamism. The second thing about the man is how much he was influenced by his father's trade. Significantly in, in his all his recent interviews, whether with Reuters, with Egyptian television stations, he keeps mentioning the experience of his father. His father ran um, an antiques shop in Khal Khalili, one of Egypt's uh, main tourist uh, locations. And in Khalili sees he would help his father as a young man. The experience not only gave him a sense of tourism, its importance, but also would be vital in understanding how the man approaches the idea of the economy or his basic idea of how the economy works. How he views his candidacy, to say the least, he's had a remarkable candidacy. There's very little actual arguments being presented to the Egyptians of why they should vote for the man. The basic argument for Sisi runs as follows. He will make you work in order to build Egypt together. You might be surprised, is this how you aim to win votes? Well, he's not seeking to win votes. For him, his candidacy is like no other. It's not like those people running in democratic elections that want to win the votes of the people. He already got the votes of the people and their support, both in terms of the massive demonstrations of the 30th of June and 3rd of July that resulted in Morsi's ouster, but also when he asked for a specific mandate from the Egyptian people, basically a vote of confidence in him, and you had those massive demonstrators, demonstrations on the 26th of July. So his candidacy has been framed by what Muhammad Hassanin Hekel one of the closest friends of Gamal Abdel Nasser and thinkers associated with is framed as he's a candidate of necessity. By this, he meant and explained that CC doesn't need to offer a program, actually, and he hasn't. We haven't seen the kind of ideas that people are offered of this candidate will do so and so. We don't know, actually, anything about those. Some vague words are presented, but nothing resembling a program. When his campaign was asked why he doesn't have a program, the le- reply was, it is too complicated for the public to understand, and it will stir unnecessary debate. That, I will return to this idea of how he views the public and his approach to politics in general. But let me move to his worldview. For Sisi, the term totalitarian might be the most appropriate not in terms of comparing him to Hitler or Stalin or any of this, but in terms of how he views the function of society in general. By this, I mean that he views the state as taking complete and total control of every segment and aspect of society. There is no segment that is private. There is no public sphere that is outside of the state. Meeting with Egyptian journalists, he would comment on The role in supporting the state's agenda. We all have to work together to build the state and its national project. You as a media have a role to work with us. Civil society, it has to work with the state. Religious institutions, al-Azhar or the Coptic church, they have to work with the state. Every aspect of society is to work in complete harmony. As a one organ, as a human body working together together, to serve the grand vision of the state. The second thing, of course, about his worldview is how he his notions about the economy or or about how a country should function. To say that they are simple, I think, is no exaggeration. He literally doesn't know how a modern economy functions. I refer to his experience being raised up in Khan khalili and his experience there. He, when talking about Egypt's economic problems, his answers are shallow, to say the least. He expects people to work and things will get better. How will you address corruption? Well, we are going to tell people not to be corrupt. And if we all work together as Egyptians, things will be fine. How do you intend to address the problem of energy? We, all of us as Egyptians, need to work together and solve this. There's no understanding of a modern economy. Why would foreign investment come to the country? His answer in a recent interview, because Egypt is an an excellent location and we have a lot of people who are ready to work. This lack of knowledge is, of course, not unexpected. The man was not in any way or shape or form related to the management of the economy, never dealt with those questions before. His realm of interest was the military. This is where his full career was. And despite talk often about the Egyptian military's economic role and economic empire, his particular service had nothing to do with that economic part. So the man has risen in the completely military ranks, not exposed to anything of dealing with the rest of society and the economy. Then this brings us to the question of how he views politics in general. For Sisi, politics is looked at with disdain. In this sense, he's perhaps the best embodiment of Gamal Abdel Nasser after all. I know when we talk of Nasserism, people usually think of the Arab nationalist aspect of it, the hatred towards Israel, the war with it, or the economic socialist policies. I'm not talking about these, but the core of the ideology of the man, the ideas that drove Gamal Abdel Nasser and his fellow free officers to revolt and start the 1952 regime. By this, I refer to a disdain to politics, a view of partisan politics as divisory to the nation. The nation doesn't have time for those divisions. It doesn't have time for those debates. We all need to be working together in full harmony in the service of the national project. Now, there's one key difference with Maoism here. He has no idea actually what uh, this national project is. And that's perhaps the most ironic part of it. The man understands or views politics and society that everyone will be working together to serve this best interest of Egypt. When you come and ask what this actually means, he doesn't have an answer. Perhaps he's never thought of it. Perhaps Egypt lacks today an answer to those questions. The Islamist answer is one that he stands against, at least the Brotherhood one. The Nasserite one has been failing miserably. He surely doesn't want to go to war with Israel tomorrow or at any time in the future. What exactly will this national interest of Egypt mean? We still don't know. So I think I've taken enough of that no, time. That's a, that's, a fan,
0: that's a fantastic introduction. So um, okay. I'm going to ask that's you um, – that, that, th- thanks very much, Sam. That's terrific. Mukhtar, if you would uh, sure. uh, um, complete the, the round picture of Egypt at present. I'll,
2: I'll, I'll try. Mm-hmm. Um, first, of course, thank you for the invitation, and thank you, Sam, for, for these it. remarks. Um, when Lee sent me the email for this event, I figured I had to block out some time to read through CC's website – um, and I, at least I thought, you know, there would be a lot of mumbo jumbo, frankly, and just a hodgepodge of, of different ideas, um, you know, being put forth. Uh, but for for lack of a better way of of presenting, this this is CC's platform. It is it is 17 bullet points on his website that simply say, uh, rough translation, vision for the future, and most of these 17 bullet points are even more generalities. Um, and my point here is, you know, picking up on what Sam said. He said it's, of course, a bit simple. I, I would add it's also not serious. And it, 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 it signals a lack of readiness. And uh, frankly, at least I thought, uh, you know, uh, that he would at least have some sort of, of vision that we can even disagree with. The problem is that we don't understand what this vision for the future that at least his campaign team is comfortable talking about, and even if you pick things at random you can find things to nitpick when it comes to the economy views on society views on politics um, you know uh, really just to kind of drive the, the point home I think the bulk really of what CC is talking about in some intelligent terms just to give you guys an example um, is an idea that 's really the brainchild of an Egyptian scientist by the name of Faroui Bez um, and, and, and what This idea is, and I think it's important to spend some time discussing it, is basically, at least as I understand it, is building a parallel Egypt of sorts, having 20-odd cities just simply to the west of the Nile Valley. We are going to run away from the problems, in my understanding, and basically try to build a better vision of what should have been built. For instance, point six on Sisi's platform is building 22 industrial cities, 26 cities eight airports. In Al-Ahram today, uh, they had a very detailed interview with him, and he effectively said this plan, which to me, frankly, for the lack of a better term, is a bit unrealistic, um, will not take 10 years, as some expect, but rather 18 months. So we should expect a lot of Chinese uh, construction companies flooding Egypt soon. And this has been a general thing uh, that CC has... Has kind of tried to, to 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 frame that he will do everything, frankly, of course, with the help of Egyptians, and he will do it fast. How fast? Two years. Now, without going into details, we can get more into details uh, details in the Q and A on issues of the economy. My my main point here is this lack of readiness and seriousness, which leads me to talk about what I think, frankly, is the most serious and the most important issue that CC and, frankly, Egyptians will have to deal with, and that is an frankly, insurmountable security um, situation and uh, political situation that I think will inhibit the country from even remotely uh, progressing, frankly, in the next uh, perhaps even decade or so. Because the dynamics that we see at play are maybe just as toxic or perhaps maybe even a bit more toxic than the dynamics that were at play in 1952 that led to the end of political life as we know it in Egypt for a number of years. The problem is that what Sisi has set in motion on July 3rd, regardless of what people might um, agree or disagree with what he did or the need for him to do this, what he did set in motion is a fragmentation of a very important and uh, critical part of, of Egyptian life, Egyptian political life and social life. That's the Islamist landscape in Egypt, which now, of course, um, for, for, for Sisi, um, is frankly an existential enemy. Now, there are many ways to try and understand why he views them as an existential enemy, but he himself uh, you know goes a step further beso- you know beyond the obvious that these people might try to kill him for what he did, is that he is trying to protect Egypt and Islam from the Muslim Brotherhood. but in the process, what he does is that as they are degrading this organization, which of course is i mean frankly in my point of view has done a lot to set this country back uh, what he does is that it opens the door for other problems that he, frankly, is completely incapable of dealing with. And what I'm talking about is uh, potential or attempted insurgency in Egypt, led by Islamists, led by others. Um, you know, when we're talking about others here, jihadists in the Sinai. Um, and, and so in the process of him, him setting it in motion July 3rd, I don't think he saw, for, he, he saw in the future what will actually be the result of that and how he will actually deal with that. Uh, And thus far, what seems to be the general tone is simply ignoring the fact that there is such a thing as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, ignoring the fact that there is anger uh, in some streets, at least in Egypt, ignoring the fact that the insurgency that's been brewing in the Sinai is not a function of a few crazy individuals, but rather a deep-seated and deep-rooted issue that they have to deal with um, in a way that's beyond military, he gives lip service to this, but we haven't really seen much. Now, a point on the military approach: just to say, there has been at least three major campaigns done in the Sinai. The result, frankly, is that the jihadists are now closer to Egypt uh, proper in Cairo, and they, you know, if we track back and we try to even plot, you know, uh, claimed successes by the Egyptian military in the Sinai, uh, we see that there has been operations starting from January in Sharia, uh, and, of course, closer and closer to Cairo. is, of course, is the easternmost governor in Egypt proper, close to the Sinai. And so the military solution hasn't really been working, um, for lack of a better phrase here. And also, the political solution to these issues is not really even something on the table. Some of us were hoping, really without much proof, that somehow when Sisi does get elected, this will open the door... Uh, for a Mubarak-like process of uh, reconciliation, releasing people from prison. But really, this is beyond even far-fetched. So we know this is not going to work. And what it leads us to is really a lack of understanding of how he will be able to handle the country's problems. Because not only is he not ready, not only is he not serious, his go-to response to some of these issues, the security one, has not worked. And frankly, I don't think will work. Not because the security solution kills people, which is, of course, terrible. Not because of the human rights um, you know, mm-hmm. violations, which are, of course, terrible. But also because they fundamentally uh, miss what the underlying problems or underlying grievances um, some of these people have. And maybe we can get into some details about some of these grievances. And so, CC doesn't have a framework for dealing with the country's security over issues. Mm-hmm. My last point, maybe kind of dealing a little bit with what uh, Sam was talking about when it comes to worldview. In most of his, of his interviews, and frankly, I've at least I've, I've tried to prepare in some way for this uh, uh, session, and so I've watched maybe one too many CC interviews in the last weeks, and uh, there's been a consistent... I mean, I can already see trends. There's a consistent thing. Every time he comes close to discuss his views on political Islam, on Islam and society, he always does this thing where he talks about it and then says, I really don't want to talk about it because it's such a complicated thing. But the few things that he's been able to kind of, you know, enlighten us about in his worldview is that there is this, frankly, attempt at social engineering of some sort, of, you know, his talk with the... Um, uh, journalists. Uh, he also had another meeting with Egypt's intellectuals the other day, and the general kind of point of view is he genuinely believes uh, that somehow you can undo um, uh, the progress of Islamists, for you know, if you will, which of course exist, which, which have of course succeeded in Egypt because there has been a vacuum in governance, there has been a vacuum in services, there has been a vacuum in all sorts of other things. You can simply focus on undoing the Islamist. Presence in Egypt by talking uh, about the issue in, in the intellectual realm, if you will, focusing on education, focusing on media um, and al Azhar, and somehow the, the state can align itself with uh, al Azhar in a way to combat these groups. And again, of course, we don't really know how that will work. Um, maybe to borrow from the literature, I guess we can call it that. Um, you know, point 16. Um, to better the uh, media rhetoric in Egypt in order to form the consciousness of the masses and to bring back um, Egyptian unity. And so for something that I think is quite significant and serious, his attempt to battle the Islamists for decades to come, the response thus far has not really been convincing. Um, and if we look at any of these drivers or dynamics that Sam has mentioned or I have mentioned, and if you really try to look hard, and frankly I do, I, I, do want, I did hope that this man will, be somehow, will somehow succeed in some way, and perhaps he can in some instances in the future, but everything that we have thus far, you have to be lying to yourself if you think that there will be some form of, of progress in Egypt with what we understand thus far about this man. Uh,
0: gentlemen, thank you for a very dark picture. Uh, Mokhtar, that was a especially dire way to end your presentation. I, I thank you for that. So anything I say will seem much more lighter. Um, really, terrific introduction. Thank you both. What, what I'd like to do now is um, I'd like to have both of you describe Egypt or actually the Egyptian electorate on the eve of the elections. And what I mean by that is, Sam, if you could go into some, um, some detail explaining We know that Sisi is going to win the elections. Why? I mean, aside from the fact that he's an authoritarian ruler and it's a hard security state. Why do Egyptians seem to love Sisi at this point, and for what reason? And Muhtad, I'm going to ask you, after Sam, to take the other side and talk about what you've you've already outlined uh, very nicely, to talk about the Islamist movement. Where, on the eve of the elections, are the Islamists? When you say there's uh, there had been some hope for some sort of reconciliation, but it seems unlikely. So what, I mean, Morsi won, uh, Morsi won the last election, which means there are a lot of people who supported the man that uh, Sisi deposed. So again, I'd like you you afterwards to describe where that part of Egypt is on the eve of elections, and so Sam, if you can kick it off. Thanks.
1: Well, yeah, we, we, we do expect that the man will win and win with a... Very high number uh, ninety plus percent I think would be a reasonable guess at the moment. things might change we the campaign is still picking up it depends a lot on mobilization on the ground, but I think at this moment ninety percent is is a reasonable number to throw with a participation rate of maybe forty to forty five percent uh, let 's put this in comparison to to the previous elections the the highest participation rates in Egypt, which is remarkable in a country that was having elections for the first time, serious and free and fair elections, was 60% in the uh, parliamentary elections in December and January 2011-2012. The presidential elections had a participation rate of um, 46 47% in its first round, and then 51% in the Uh, final round between Morsi and Shafiq. Where does Sisi's support come from? A, we have to remember that although Morsi won the elections, he won with only 51%, meaning that already 49% of the country was willing to align itself with a very clear, stark contrast, to put it mildly, to the Muslim Brotherhood, which was presented by Ahmad Shafiq. the last prime minister of Mubarak in his days before leaving office, a man who stood very clearly on a platform of stability, not support for the revolution, to say the least, and that resonated with the people. So there's already a clear segment in society that would prefer a return to law and order, basic life, stability. That's natural. Egypt has seen tremendous changes in the last three years um after 30 years at least of zero politics people are seeing presidents go from the palace to jail another coming from jail to the palace to jail this is too much change people are longing for a normal life again they're also longing for an economic normal life again tourism is of course non-existent the economy is in horrible shape these things are taken for granted as we talk but they affect the daily lives of people. People are not able to bring bread to their tables today, and they're facing those questions. The security situation outside of the Islamist insurgency is a disaster. Basic law and order, crime rate is exceptionally high. All of these factors um, help a candidate that brings a message of stability, normalcy. I am the state. And that's a key element here. Sisi is not a candidate that happens to have been a military officer. He's a candidate that the military has provided as one, meaning that the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces had the meeting, they issued the proclamation that we are allowing Sisi to run. This is the clearest backing you can get. So although the man has given or has shed away his uniform, he's coming to the table as the candidate of the state meaning I am the man who will make the state work with me. If the state was not, if the state by the state I refer to bureaucracy, the the very state organs, the judiciary and so on, if the state wasn't willing to work with Morsi and help bring down his or make his regime a failure, I'm the guy who the state will be happy to work with. We have a segment of society that are the Christians, of course, that are scared, to say the least, from the Islamists, and view Sisi as a savior. We have, uh, I mean, there are a variety of segments in society that for their particular reasons find this appeal of Sisi very natural at the moment. And of course, it's a general reflection of the failure of the Egyptian political clause that there is no serious contender in front of Sisi today. That's a reflection of the predicament of egypt more than anything else yeah, if
0: i can ask you about just something quickly sam before we go to uh, Mukhtar, something that you've spoken about very well in the past which is um which is a cult of personality also that has grown up <coughs> around sisi over the last i think this is probably something that a lot of people aren't aware of so i mean if if you can just describe it a little bit and where this seems to come from as well
1: Well, the cult of personality, those familiar with Maoist art are perhaps the most uh, who understand what we're talking about in Egypt in the case. Or, in a sense, the North Korean uh, cult of, of the leader that's going on there. The idea is that this man is the embodiment of the dreams of Egyptians. He is presented, before even he promoted himself to the rank of field marshal, he was still a general... Um, he was being proclaimed the field marshal of the people, being drawn on pictures with the masses filling Tahrir Square, and the general overseeing them from above. This leader for the nation. You see his pictures from chocolate to female underwears to everything in the country. You see the man's picture on at the moment. So, so this—he's—he's um, he's the savior. I mean, it's—it's. It's, uh, it's sad to note that even for Christians, the, the language used to describe him is very similar to language used to describe Jesus Christ, for example, of the savior that saved the country uh, from its enslavement under the Brotherhood. That, that language is very heavily used in the country.
0: Thanks. Mukhtar, if you would like to sure. yeah, fill in the other sign so far
2: as... Um, the other side, if, if you will, I mean, uh, Sam is a lot more well versed in the numbers and, and tracking them. But to put it in layman's math, of course, there's at least a core kind of constituency of about five plus million or so voters who voted for Morsi in that first round. Who you would, for instance, maybe try to track or or try to look at try to look at that voting block. Now you can swell that number to seven million or so, but. Even if we just stay with the conservative number of 5 million, I think the overwhelming majority of these people are not necessarily going to be voting for Hamdin Sabahi. Um, not to kind of put a, a psychoanalytic uh, kind of twist to this analysis, but I think it will be difficult for them to just participate in the process. Um, a lot of uh, people try to kind of have this... Uh, how can I put this? A lot of people want to hold on to kind of decade-old analysis of the brotherhood that they always adapt, they're always ever so pragmatic and shrewd and everything like that, and that regardless of all that we're seeing right now, they're still going to run and people are... So, I don't think that the current dynamics allow for that. I don't think these people, the ones that you see either nonviolent ones protesting um, in some of the Egypt cities, and especially those who even support violence, quite frankly, a lot of them support violence uh, either uh, financially or at least morally, um, they are not going to be participating in this. Or up to vote for Sabahi. And so you'll be seeing a lot of voter apathy. Now, this will be for the bulk of them. Now, there is another thing that is, makes perfect sense, and I do not want to talk about it unless there is some form of credible evidence. Now, there still isn't kind of evidence for this, and that is the idea of people who will act as spoilers um, for when it comes to the elections. Um, all sorts of different types of violence. Some of the people that you know I, I track and, and keep in touch with uh, when it comes to the non-jihadi sphere of violent Islamists in Egypt, um, they don't hide away from saying that they do look forward to, to spoiler violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to, to be kind of a, a typical uh, CT type analyst, but... There is um, a bit of a calm right now in terms of violent activity. If you're trying to track it, since the beginning of May, there hasn't been any major attacks. Um, The last major attack happens to coincide with the official opening of um, the presidential election cycle, uh, basically telling you that, you know, we're coordinating it now. Mm -hmm. Once the day actually starts, you will start to see um, all other other forms of attacks. Uh, The last attack, if I'm not mistaken, either May 2nd or May 3rd, don't quote me on that. Uh, of course, there were suicide bombings in uh, Sinai. Um, but there was also a small bomb attack in Cairo that, by the way, no group has claimed responsibility for uh, up to up to this moment. And I think we will be starting to see a lot more of that. Um, and uh, frankly, some people in the Muslim Brotherhood support this kind of violence. Mm-hmm. They, they think it's perfectly justifiable. Um, a, it, it's increasingly not too difficult or too costly to you know figure out the know- how for IEDs and planting them and things along those lines mm-hmm. there 's been a group called nad mush that 's claimed at least fourteen Ied attacks successful Ied attacks um, and so frankly there's there's this type of chatter and we should definitely expect um, spoiler violence when it comes to the jihadis I think that 's a given um, of course no one can can know what type of attacks they will try the plan but perhaps to try and remain relevant i think they will most likely try to uh, execute something in the heartland if well, you l-
0: l- let me ask you this is something that sam and i have talked about at different times um, um and, and you mentioned it before in your opening sure. remarks about these were the decisions that cc made and it set certain things in motion hmm. one of the things that we see in motion now is i mean this decision in many ways decision to overthrow morsi really split the country in two, um, hmm. maybe not in, maybe not exactly in two, but it split the country sure. with one side, as you're talking about employing, often employing violent means. I think there are a lot of people, uh, certainly many people would like to see Sisi put down the insurgency and uh, keep Egypt, keep especially the major cities, safe. What are the chances, Muhtar, I'll start with you first, because this seems to me like a major issue, Mm. And this is Egypt. What are the chances of him, of him, whatever battle he has with the brotherhood and Mm. whatever battle he has with the insurgency, with the various groups in the Sinai? What will the security situation look like in Egypt for, is it going to look worse than the 80s and 90s with Mubarak? Is it Mm. going to look like it did in the 50s at a certain point
2: with Nasser? Is it going to be worse?
0: Mm. What do you, what's that landscape look like? And then Sam, I'll ask you the, the same.
2: Thank you for for the question. It's um, frankly, it's been something that has been on my mind for for a few months, um, and and trying to kind of uh, learn more about the insurgency of the '90s and the kind of uh, different uh, attacks and protagonists and antagonists that were act, you know active uh, at that time. Frankly, I think the level and scale of violence will be will be a lot worse because the anatomy of the current. I call it attempted insurgency because really it's not full scale, any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's a lot more uh, rooted, uh, a lot more widespread than it ever was in the 80s or the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put it in its most kind of simple terms, in the 80s and the 90s, of course, you had the most active group, Islamia, Islamiyah, um, which had basis of operations, if you will, of course, in Upper Egypt, and other areas um, with some successful attacks uh, over the years and other people who were inspired by them carrying out assassinations, either of government officials or public intellectuals. Um, But that even, which I don't really think was um, as ferocious as, frankly, what we've seen thus far from coming from the Sinai, that did not end with a security solution, Um, even under the most you know, repressive years of Mubarak's regimes, surely they, they were able to kind of keep these people in check. But ultimately, it took a very kind of concerted effort, especially on the part of, of uh, domestic intelligence, Amn al-Dawla, uh, more specifically, to actually engage some of these individuals and actually talk to them. Um, and ultimately, of course, as we know, jamaa Islamiyah had its famous and and they basically said that they gave up, but also intellectually. Now, when we look at Egypt today, uh, what we have is Jihadis and non-Jihadis, both on um, a path towards violence. The non-Jihadis here are, to me, the, the new kind of component, the new um, ingredient to this toxic mix that we haven't really seen before. And I argue that the, 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 the pitfall, not to give them ideas, but you know, of the jamaa Islamiya. <laughs> back during its day is that it was never able to recruit a critical mass of Egyptians, especially young Egyptians, educated Mm -hmm. Egyptians. Of course there were some of those in their ranks, but it was not a widespread thing. Mm -hmm. It was not, um, you know, they were not able to get even hundreds uh, of people on a recurring basis to join the cause. This is different today. The scale of repression of the state is also uh, a bit different. More blood has been spilled. There are a lot more people who know people who were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual assault and rape, for instance, is the primary, uh, I think, um, uh, tool for recruitment. Um, there was a group called Ansar al-Sharia, uh, Egypt, that kind of came out of uh, of nowhere. There's been other groups with that name, but as an aside, uh, they claimed to kill at least 26 police officers and conscripts. The Ministry of Interior came a month later or so and confirmed 19 of these deaths. You go back to the statement posted by Ansar al-Sharia, the very first thing is that this is to avenge for the hara'ir. It's the term that they use for female Islamist Mm -hmm. protesters that get arrested by the security apparatus and because they were raped. And, of course, a tool like that, for instance, just just to kind of add more Mm -hmm. color here, is something that makes this fight for insurgency, that makes the fight for violence, to a degree actually a bit non-ideological. You're able to actually get more people who would not really subscribe to jihadi ideology. Conversations we've had for, for the research um, that, that we did at CAP, um, a lot of the people that you know we talked to would laugh at the mention of al-Qaeda or jihadi groups, would even critique you know, what Jabhat Nusra is doing and ISIS is doing, and say that they're different. What they are trying to do is build a base of popular support. And so all mm-hmm. of these different things, I think, make us understand that the level and scale of what we're seeing is a completely different ball game than, than what was at play in the 80s and, and, and in the 90s. Um, and I mean, this is perhaps a point I'm not too convinced of, but sure, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood during the 80s and the 90s was a more moderate force that at least tried to play some form of role, allegedly, in talking to these folks and moderating these folks. I mean, again, not too wedded to that kind of analysis, but even if that is true, by some extent, now you have the Muslim Brotherhood as your main agitating uh, right. agent. Um, frankly, pushing for insurgency. There are people in the Muslim Brotherhood proper who want to see an insurgency uh, in in Egypt, and and that is also something that we didn't see uh, before. I mean, this is Sam. Uh, just gonna lead in, if I may. I mean, th- I think this is,
0: a, this is an enormous issue insofar as lots of people have been supportive of Sisi. Uh, Certainly, in, and here in Washington and in the rest of the uh, international community, they'd like to see him put down. Certainly, put down the insurgency, and they wanted to find some accommodation for the Brotherhood. But other people have also believed that it's possible to entirely decapitate the Brotherhood. And it seems that what you're describing is that this is not going to happen. That in fact, what's happening, these movements are these movements are as powerful and they have more wider base of support than they had in the 80s and 90s. I guess, Sam, if I can ask you then to talk a little um, – to fill that in a bit and say how is, how is Sissy waging this campaign and why is this – why is it not successful? Is it by definition it would never happen? Did there always have to be a political component or what does Sissy's campaign look like um, against the, against yeah. the isms
1: couple of points first i think that the distinction between jihadi and non-jihadi violent islamism is very important here and that we are really witnessing a new phenomena that we haven't dealt with before we were used to the brotherhood we're somehow used to the idea of quiet salafism we're used to the jihadis this revolutionary islam in the cities this um Uh, whether it's the Molotov movement, whether it's the older Hazemun movement of the candidate for President Hazem Salah Abusmail, Ismail, that's a new phenomenon. And I think it's something that will continue with us in the future. As Mukhtar mentioned, it's also something that allows non-ideological Egyptians to join in. I mean, it's... Really a lot of fun just to throw a Molotov cocktail on a police car here and there. That's your daily activity. Uh, The element of revenge is extremely high, both, of course, for the rapes. And, and of course, we don't know if the rapes are true or not. But for those stories of rapes and torture and also for Rabaa, which I think is a transformative Mm -hmm. moment for the Islamists. One thousand people were butchered in that square. Now, no matter how we like to look at it, it's an experience that will no, not go away very easily from the collective consciousness of the Islamists. It's no surprise that the forefinger, the Rabbah sign, has become an international sign for brotherhood supporters everywhere. It's, a, it's an event that is having a, a Karbala-like effect on the brotherhood. They were there, the people who were, were there with them are the good guys. If you weren't there, then you will never be one of us again. It's, it's one of those really transformative moments that we're witnessing. Go- I think part of the story of the insurgency in its jihadi aspect is the difference between the geographical location. In the south of Egypt, they were mostly centered, the Jama'a Islamiyah or the Islamic Jihad, in many, Asyut, Suhag. You had very few in the most southern governorates of Qina and Aswan, This meant that it was geographically isolated within the country. They had no access to borders, to an an outside country next to them. This is very different from insurgency in the Sinai, where you have a much more open environment, you have smuggling of weapons going on, both from Gaza to Gaza, experiences being shared with uh, more radical jihadis in Gaza, unhappy with Hamas, And they formed, I think, a huge component of what we know now as Ansar Bet al-Maqdis, the main terrorist organization in the Sinai. You also have a completely open border with Libya, which I think is likely to be another front in this terrorism war in Egypt. Uh, It's a long border. There's no state in Libya. There's no serious control of the arms flow. There are... Is an abundance of arms because of the revolution in Libya and because of the arms provided to the rebels and from the Libyan army. There is Islamist groups already there that share views with those in Egypt. So the possibility that you'd have an insurgency next to the Libyan border, I think, is very high, especially that that particular governate, the Matruh governate next to Libya. Uh, voted for the Islamists with the highest percentage in Mm. Egyptian elections. They voted with 96% for the Islamists in parliament, 79% for the Salafis, and 16% to the brotherhood. So that's, I think, the geography plays a factor Mm. here. It's also true that, as Muhtar mentioned, that you have now the brotherhood Basically, members up to recruitment. Uh, The CC has successfully arrested the first, second, and probably third tier of the leadership, outside of a few people who managed to escape outside of the country. But this means that a completely hierarchical organization is now leaderless, and it's acting based on personal initiative that's a very dangerous territory you have we our yeah. estimate of the members of the brotherhood is about half a million <clears throat> committed members to it and we're here not talking about people who joined the democratic or republican party they signed a piece of regi- uh, paper registering when they were getting their driving license we're talking about people who gave 8 years of their lives to become members of the muslim brotherhood going through a process of being examined five times of uh, providing money of their income, 7 to 15% of their income, to the organization, of facing all kinds of challenges. These are committed people. And now there are no orders coming from above. More importantly, they're also sharing their struggle with other non-organizational Islamists, i.e. revolutionary people from the Hazemun movement, from uh, the other activist Salafi movement, uh, followers of Muhammad Abu masood Husam al-Bukhari, and others like these. So as a result, they're much more going into this violent action against the regime. Because of the, the, the deaths, because of the amount of blood, as Muhtar mentioned, uh, we, we always, people refer to Sisi as, um, in his crackdown in the Brotherhood, comparing him to Nasser, we have to remember, when Nasser had the assassination attempt on him in 1954, he killed seven people. That's the amount of death that was done. Seven people were hanged for that attempt. When Sayed Qutb, the whole Sayed Qutb episode in Egyptian history ended with three people being hanged. Today we're talking about 1,000 people in one day in a square in Cairo. The total number of deaths in the previous couple of months exceeds 3,000. So, so that we're really entering into very different territory here.
2: Of just, just to make a, a point that uh, maybe adds, I guess, what we just said. Th- there's also an unsettling component when it comes. So, so, so we talk about the security apparatus that has uh, amazing ability to kill in, you know a thousand, near a thousand people in one day and things like that. But it's, it's also very, it's disproportionate force. But it's also disproportionate in, in, in how it uh, implements its its force, if you will, across Egypt. Meaning. Outside of Cairo and Alexandria, and obviously as we see in Sinai, there's a very fundamental problem when it comes to law and order Mm -hmm. and being able to actually contain um, issues. Um, Just to give an an example, about 10 years ago, uh, March of 2004, and I I like to give this story because a lot of people actually know it, at least in Egypt. There's a famous uh, movie, the uh, Jazeera movie. It's uh, it's about a drug lord, uh, Nasut, and people think who who, who uh, you know takes over an island? Uh, he is lives on this island, and in the final scene, he he battles the state. And people think, uh, at least for me myself, growing up, I used to think it's a fictional story. It's not. That was in a suit in the in the height of Mubarak's um, you know regime, if you will. Um, I, I had to go back to the BBC story because it was just uh, amazing. They just just to take down one drug gang, it took them six days. There were 6,000 security personnel, 200 armored cars. They had to use RPGs and mortars. And they, at the end of the day, they claimed that only one person was killed, but the AFP at the time said uh, around 70 bodies were collected. This was to take a drug lord down in suit in 2004.
0: Well, this comes back to what I was asking. So what does CC's counterinsurgency campaign look like? I know that some of the times there's criticism of the Obama administration for not um, – or not – well, certainly when the Apaches, when they were holding on to the Apaches, that was part of the criticism that they can use the Apaches in the Sinai. But how much, how much will the Apaches solve what it seems to me the two of you are describing as a fundamental problem with Sisi's counterinsurgency campaign? What it is, I don't know what that problem is. Maybe it's about the Egyptian security forces. Maybe it's about the army. Maybe it's about the kind of campaign they're waging.
2: I thought, or do you want to, I interrupted you, so. Um, you know, to, to, to add, yes, on, on, on the Apache's uh, point, I think I think uh, the Apache's completely missed miss the point, uh, especially when we look at, you know, what's happening in the Sinai. Um, and and I will actually wanted to spend more time outside of Sinai, which I think is, frankly, a lot more critical. Um, to... You mean in, in the cities? You mean in in, the, in, in Cairo? Or? In uh, Well, actually, outside of Cairo, the potential uh-huh. for, for Upper Egypt. I mean, okay. this is... Frankly, the story that's waiting to happen. If you do have a serious problem in Egypt, it will not. It will not be in the Sinai. It will be outside of the Sinai. Why? But, okay, okay. Yeah. Please go ahead. So, but just just on, on the Sinai, just just you know, of course, I'm not a you know, expert on the Egyptian military's uh, counter insurgency strategies, but
1: uh, you assume they have one.
2: Assuming that they have one. Um, <laughs> when 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 we look at the Sinai, you know, C had warned uh, in a leaked uh, uh, video uh, months ago that. First of all, he used to think at least, and this is quite just astounding, that it is not the military's job to combat terrorism. He said this explicitly. Now, and he also said to, to, to people in an audience um, in a closed military setting, which again was, was leaked, um, that if the military does in fact play this game, it can easily finish it in a few days, and all that it needs to do is get people out of the city. Uh, whatever city it may be, uh, or, you know, of course in Sinai, so smaller cities, uh, simply bomb everything and that's it. And frankly, we've seen that happen recently. Mm. Um, and that just recruits a lot more people. And so in Sinai, it's been slash and burn, frankly, to try and deal with these insurgents. The idea that they can use Apaches to surgically maneuver them, so, that does that not square with what they've actually been doing on the ground. Um, now, when it comes to Egypt proper, frankly, it's a very um, uh, not so clear uh, kind of vision. My, my, my point on, on Asyut here is that, um, you know, right after... I, right I, after I wish we period, had
0: a map, but if you can just explain... Sure as quickly, if we can point it, you don't have to draw it.
2: Just <laughs> <Sure>. like, <yeah. laughs> or you feel free if you no, want. No, no. Uh, like you know, i see, I'll see this is. Kilometers
1: from yeah. Cairo, four hundred yeah. kilometers. Uh, about. Yeah. I mean,
2: it's it's a twelve-hour train trip, which will text, will tell you a lot about logistics if they ever do actually have to face something serious in these in these areas. Anyways, um, the my, my point was that you know, back at their heyday, they had to use this kind of force to, to meet a drug lord. At, r- immediately after the coup, we saw. Some very disorganized attempts at, frankly, liberating areas and try to take take out uh, police stations. This happened in uh, Delga, um, and uh, this also, of course, happened in Cordessa. There was this is in Giza, uh, where you had this infamous uh, uh, instance of, of police officers summary executions of police officers, frankly, by locals. Um, and so we've seen some of that happening right after the the coup. Um, it was a very slow process for, a, for the police to actually regain control of some of these areas. But this was a, a kind of a phase that passed. And so we did have that scare for a very short period of time. Um, currently, frankly, we just have very limited visibility on the state of play in Upper Egypt when it comes to attempts by um, you know uh, possible insurgents. But what we do see, and, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that when it comes to the security's grip on these areas when we talk about the peripheries uh, of course in Upper Egypt um, it's been uh, lack of complete law and order, you have you know, many kidnappings of Coptic Christians there uh, and the police having a very kind of uh, complacent attitude and in, in one instance I believe um, Sam shared before uh, you know th- there was uh, a Coptic Christian who, who was kidnapped and the police officer said something along the lines of you know, you know, de- you know deal with it among yourselves, why do I have to, to get in the middle of this and, and, and you know, possibly get shot? And so this, this shows you the attitude of how they deal with simple law and order issues in these areas. Um, if they do see the same level of committed uh, insurgents as we saw in the 80s and the 90s, then they'll have a, a very big problem. The underlying thing, again, there is no strategy, and they don't have people on the ground mm. capable of, of just implementing law and order, let alone handle mm. insurgents. So
1: To add a few words, A, the army was hardly involved in the fighting terrorism in the 80s and 90s. It was the security Mm. service that handled that job. B, and now, of course, the security services are very weak and incapable of dealing with that struggle. Second, we know from at least WikiLeaks that the U.S. has been pressuring the Egyptian military for a while to change its attitude, we're talking before the revolution, of course, to try to deal with questions of counterinsurgency, uh, policing, dealing with um, uh, counterterrorism questions, the piracy in the next to Somalia, all those questions, and that there was strong resistance from the Egyptian military to any change of direction that would take them away from their eternal preparation for a war that will never happen with Israel, to put it this way. So the Egyptian military has never been trained to deal with those issues. They simply don't know how to handle those issues. They know how to bomb, and they're not very good at it. But outside of that, they don't really know how to deal with it. And thirdly, of course, it's the, the nature of the challenge, both in terms of they're dealing with jihadis in Sinai, they're dealing with a, perhaps a different form of jihadis inside the cities, and they're dealing with a serious local violence level everywhere in the country, but especially in the South. They don't know how to deal with this. They're targeted personally. We're saying, uh, Muhtar mentioned 19 officers killed in one month, was it, in yeah. Sharia? These killings, those burning of police officers' cars, targeting their families, is a now daily occurrence. So that's another challenge that I think is really exhausting the, the security state, to put it mildly. Um
0: let me move it then from inside Egypt to um, Egyptian foreign policy under Sisi. I mean, and if you guys, I mean, there's a number of different issues. I mean, we can come back to since you mentioned since you mentioned the eternal preparation for the war that will never happen. We understand that security and military coordination right now between Egypt and Israel seems to be going very well, but this also seems to be on a very high level over the heads of most over the heads of most Egyptians. Right? I mean, in some ways, this, this would be classified information, aside from the fact that it's published every day. Everyone seems to, no, everyone seems to know about this except ordinary Egyptians, yeah. or, I mean, or am, am, am I wrong with this? But I mean, that, that's just a way to get into it. So, but let's just talk about what Sisi's Egypt will look like Will look like uh, in
1: terms of foreign policy. Well, oh, yeah, yeah why, why don't you start off, Sam? Um, well, um, I think a couple of countries are important to talk about here. Israel, I think um, there's no threat to the peace treaty, and I don't think there ever was a serious threat to the peace treaty, even you, you under mean, you, Morsi. Seas, Morsi yeah. Even under Morsi. Uh, a war between Egypt and Israel will not result in any good result for Egypt, to put it mildly, and the Egyptian military knows that very well. They Yes, they maintain the myth of the 73 victory, But the reality of the military balance between the two countries is very clear. So I don't think there's any threat of a war starting between Egypt and Israel. There was a milder threat, I think, in in the past in the sense of uh, terrorists throwing rockets on Israel, Israel being forced to react, and would that lead to an, an unintended war that no one wants? But I think that's not happening anytime soon. The level of cooperation that you talked about is very high. I think the the two more critical questions for Egyptian foreign policy, however, is Syria and Libya. Syria, because the people who are paying Sisi's salary, i.e. the Gulf, have a very different policy towards Libya than Egypt has at the moment. The Gulf has provided over $20 billion in total, probably even more by now, to rescue Egypt's economy. Now, Saudi Arabia has a very active policy in Syria. Egypt's official position still maintains a peaceful resolution that it does not call for Assad to go. Internally, a majority probably of the people supporting uh, Sisi also support Assad. Viewing all Islamists as alike. So the Islamists in Syria are like the ones that we have. We'd like to, uh, Assad is the one who's confronting them there. So how will Sisi be able to balance this local pressure on him with the pressure that would come from the Gulf for realignment of Egyptian foreign policy? Whether will we, we will be seeing the Egyptian foreign ministry simply being the second Riyadh foreign ministry or not, I think is an important thing to watch. Another important thing is, I think, Libya. As I mentioned, there's a security threat, national security threat to Egypt coming from Libya. Uh, arms flowing through the border, complete instability, huge number of kidnappings, especially of uh, Egyptian Christians inside Libya. This is putting low pressure inside Egypt for Egypt to act, do something about this challenge. Then comes, of course, the very notion of the economic benefit that Egypt will get from getting involved in Libya. Libya is, of course, rich in oil resources. Eastern Libya especially, it's a country that's divided among tribal lines, where the whole notion of unity between East and Western Libya, between Benghazi and Tripoli, is a, a modern invention. And Egypt has a historical claim to part of eastern Libya that was given up by the British occupation to Mussolini at the time, who was occupying Libya. H- how much is is that an oil region? The part it's, it's a it's a small part, but it's right. a it's an oil rich oh. yeah uh, region. It's not the whole of eastern right. Libya, of course, but th- there's a there's room there for innovation. I think it's it's interesting that Sisi talks about it in his interview with. Reuters. He's asked about the situation in Libya. He blames the West, of course. The West started the job and never finished it. And someone needs to go there and finish the job. Does this leave room for, does he have aspiration to finish it? Will he be forced to finish it? These are two possible, I think, uh, can ask, reasons what, to get involved can i ask what's the job that he sees it necessary to finish that the country is completely unstable it's there's no law and order it's a security threat to itself oh. and to its neighbors okay um
0: uh, your sense of again sisi's foreign policy egyptian foreign policy under i mean
2: it's it's it's, it's difficult to frankly have kind of a, a clear vision on this and you know on on the point of Libya, it, the thing about Libya is that it's always made perfect sense for Egypt to have a role, but they've always never done anything remotely mm-hmm. practical um, and at its height was during of course the Libyan war um, Of course, perhaps there was some sort of covert role for the Egyptians, at least I hope there was but uh, overtly <laughs> I, I remember I, I remember at that time waiting and waiting to see what. The posture of the scaf would be, since they would have a similar understanding that CC has on the terms of the security implications of what happens in Libya. But we really haven't seen a robust role for Egypt and Libya. But then again, that might change. I think maybe to kind of just give the the other side um, on this foreign policy thing uh, to Sam's is, and I'm not necessarily wedded to this, is that we will just continue to see more of the same, and that is largely Egyptian disengagement and uh, a narrow focus on some strategically important issues, like Ethiopia, but not actually Mm -hmm. doing anything again practical for for when it comes to solving these issues. Um, Sisi, at least gleaning from the interviews, he seems to want to kind of espouse this idea of soft power. Uh Uh, uh, But Uh, but again, nothing new that we've... But I mean, he's also talked
0: about, which I guess is not new either, but the idea of uh, Egypt leading, that hmm. Egypt out front. Whether it's in the Middle East, Egypt has a role in the world to play. Whether it's the Middle East or Africa, what's your? Uh,
2: do you think he believes this? I think I he this believes was part of his it. dream. No, he? no. I, look, I think he, he believes it. I just don't think it will be possible. On the, you know the Syria point, the Syria point, I think is actually very important here because there is. A, the, I mean, you know, the point uh, Sam raised has been something that's been on my mind for a long time. But someone recently told me, I guess, a very cynical uh, analysis of this that I will share. This is really, uh, the, the contradiction that exists is a reflection of how insignificant Egypt's point of view is to the Gulfies. That they can simply mm. tolerate CC saying this and that when they know he's not going to do anything that will actually change the balance of forces on the ground in Syria. And if push comes to shove, that they need him to shut up he will shut up, to, to, to speak frankly. Um, so I think Egypt's role will continue to be disengaged and largely a bit insignificant. And perhaps uh, another reading of the Arab or the Gulf point of view is for them not to actually care what he says on Syria.
0: Let's let's stick
2: with the Gulf uh, stance if just we can. I, so.
1: I think that there's an important point here. And involvement in any issue does not mean success. Mm. Um, I think when we're talking about the insurgency or foreign policy, People tend to underestimate how weak the Egyptian state is at the moment. Uh, This is a state that collapsed so easily under protests against Mubarak. I mean, um, uh, just to make a comparison, when the Chinese regime faced a challenge in Tiananmen Square, it sent tanks. When Mubarak faced a challenge, he sent camels and horses. There's something there about the very fabric of a modern state in Egypt and its capabilities to deal, whether with a foreign policy challenge or an internal one. So if Egypt gets involved, whether as a uh, training role for the Syrian rebels that the Saudis are backing, or getting more involved in security in Libya, it's a recipe for disaster. I mean, this will not be a success story by any means or form.
0: Um I'm going to open it up right now to questions. And actually, I see a colleague in the back. Um, do we have a, a, a microphone? Oh, great.
3: Um, Hello, Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. Uh, thanks to you all, uh, Sam, Lee, Mokhtar. Um I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to go back to the the beginning. Uh, your descriptions of the general characteristics of, of uh, Morsi. Um, and their primarily their liabilities, the, the grand talk of uh, mobilizing the country, uh, which you, Sam, described as totalitarian in a, a formal sense, romantic in another sense, therefore perhaps more benign. Um, uh, what Mukhtar talked about was the program, which is not a program, that is completely empty. Um, the one positive... Uh, was perhaps the, the complete naturalness of Sisi's uh, uh, religiosity so that um, he really does connect with people and um, I- in that sense is in, in, in a kind of tune with them and also tune with them on the level of uh, religiosity that is natural to them and which was, they felt, in a way assaulted by, by the brotherhood. Um, the first two sound, uh, you know, would seem simply liabilities, but I wonder if, um, if that's entirely the case, uh, in the first place, the fact that he has an absolutely empty program means that he doesn't actually have to answer for any of the specifics, um, uh, and, um, that could be, you know, he won't be a hypocrite if he hasn't said anything in a certain way. Um. And also um, this notion of mass mobilization and it 's particularly there that i 'm wondering whether they're you know we 've seen that before in quote unquote tol- totalitarian uh, kinds of regimes um, Their results are mixed, but they for a while they have a great deal of they can have a great deal of energy, and especially if people to some degree have real confidence in the man who has called them to, to do that. And I was wondering whether you think that's really a possibility. If he, You know, CC says every Thursday everyone is going to work for the country. And, will, you know, if the harvest has to be brought in, everyone will go to the fields. If the c- streets have to be cleaned, everyone will go to the, s- to the streets. That kind of thing we've seen many times in European and East Asian countries, never really in Egypt and for that matter in any Middle Eastern country uh, whether that might be something like a program, and and then the, the flip side with what Muster had to say is the fact that he doesn't hasn't filled in anything. It the plus of it is not only it seems to me not only that he uh, isn't answerable, but that he can turn to other people for answers. That is, so then the question is, to go, you know, to begin where Sam began. Not only who is the man, but who are the men? Who are the people uh, he might ask to fill in this program? Sam, do you want
1: to? On mobilization, I think there's a a question mark there that we still don't know. Uh, What kind of political order will he create? It won't be democratic. We know that already. It will be exclusionary to the Muslim Brotherhood, at least question mark about other Islamists. But my question is much more about what kind of political system will he have? Will he have a one-party state or numerous political parties that compete and fight under the feet of the great leader? In this sense, we still don't have an answer to that, and I'm not sure if he does already. Um, A friend who's who's an
3: enough, Because I didn't think of it in those terms, but, um, you know, there is such a thing as uh, politics by movement. Yeah. And w- the way you were describing it or the way he speaks now, like in to Reuters yesterday or to the al um, earlier in the week, it sounds like he's standing at the head of a movement, not of a state or a party or something like that. Um. That's true in case of
1: populist leaders in Latin America, of course. Nasser attempted to do something of a bit similar. Um, It's not, I don't know how it would apply to someone who comes from the very body of the state. He spent 60 years of his life serving that state and within that bureaucracy. And the Egyptian army is literally a bureaucracy and not a fighting force at the moment. Um, It has been like that for a long time. I think who he resorts... So we don't exactly know about the shape of the political system. We do know, I think, that he resort to the army in everything. Meaning, uh, if there's... A, and we've seen historical examples of this in Egypt. If there's a... Uh, if uh, taxi drivers are on strike on one day, you will find conscripts running the taxis of Egypt. If the food distribution, the bread distribution is facing problems. You'll find conscripts distributing the bread as Mubarak resorted to them in 2005 or 2006. So you'll see much more dependence on the army. The idea that the army is efficient, that it's less corrupt, which is a question mark, of course, that it can get things done better than others can do it. So I think CC's base, CC's arm is the military. He'll be resorting to it at every given moment for it to solve whatever problem. You need a new road to be done fast for investment in this new city. It's the military that's going to do this. So you'll see a huge expansion of the military's role in the economy, much larger than people imagine it is at the moment. You'll also see in this sense um, removal from the military from its traditional role, and it becoming a very polarizing um, aspect of Egyptian society. Meaning it will not be only the people that butchered the Islamists or that fought the Islamists in Raba'a. It will also be the contractor that you have to deal with to finish that road as a subcontractor. It will be the guy who's selling you bread in the supermarket. That is a recipe for disaster, to say the least especially that the Egyptian military had historically played a very important role as a pillar of the foundation of modern Egypt since Muhammad Ali's dream, which was a a military dream, and the Egyptian state has been modeled around that military. So it's a very dangerous recipe about it. Concerning one last comment about Sisi in general, um, and that's, I think, a comment by a brilliant observer in, in Egypt, who said that there are two kinds of chess players, those who read the whole board and know in advance what the next five steps will be that they will play, and there are those that react to every play by the opponent. CeCe is the guy who reacts. He, there's no grand reading of the scene, whether it's the economy, how to deal with the brotherhood. He's a, he's a guy who reacts to the situation as it emerges.
0: Uh, there's a gentleman all the way in the back. Hi. Uh, excellent
4: presentations. Really enjoyed them. Thanks. Um, Can you identify yourself? Bill Lawrence, uh, formerly North Africa Director for International Crisis Group and now at George Washington University. Uh, two quick questions. Uh, one is um, uh, on the NUR party. I'm surprised there was no mention. They were the second vote-getters in the last election, so I wondered if either of you wanted to talk about how, how, what, what's going on with them as, this, as things move forward. Uh, both in terms of relations with CC and how much he depended or will be depending on them, uh, elections, et cetera. Uh, the second question is sort of whether the mukhabarat state, right? The mukhabarat state before the revolution was in everybody's business, right? There were every single NGO in Egypt had a minder from the Ministry of Social Affairs. I mean, th- they, were, they were everywhere. Um, so I'm wondering what changed, if anything, permanently with the revolution vis-à-vis the Muhabbered state? Muhabberid state, Or is it just a total restoration or a changed Muhabbered state? Uh, wh- where is that, and how does that fit into uh, some of the calculations you're making? I, I know you've already spoken about police and security services and their role. That, I'm not re-asking that question, okay. but it's more like w- what happened with the Muhabbered right. state.
0: Thank you. Uh, Muhtar, would you like to start with the nur, sure. with the newer party, and then you lead into the second question, and then Sam, I'm going to ask you to, to respond to that too.
2: Um, on, on the Noor Party, actually, the, it, there was no mention, uh, perhaps my design on my part, because they're the, or the Tzedah what I focus on actually the most in Egypt, so I didn't want to, you know, get into that rabbit hole. Um, look, a, a, a few kind of points, and if you want later, uh, we, can, we can discuss in, in some detail. I think the Noor Party is, is actually quite critical uh, to monitor and to look at, because it will be a litmus test for, I think, how Sisi um, will try to implement his vision, that we understand at least up to this point, of what a future Egypt will look like. Will he be able to tolerate on a purely pragmatic basis this non-competitive uh, Islamist force on the ground? Uh, will he be doing anything to try and contain them or not? When it comes to how CC benefits from them Look, it's only in the framework of military intelligence. Now, the Salafi is, of course, uh, so I'm using here Salafi Dawah just to, to, to talk about the Noor Party. There isn't really much of a Noor Party. It's just really the Salafidawa that created the Noor Party. Anyways, it's based in Alexandria, but a big part of its operation historically has been in marsamatruh marsamatruh and of every other uh, periphery governorate, is under the purview of the military intelligence. And so they've had this deep-seated relationship with the Sarafidawa, um, where they've used them to try and settle tribal disputes, clan disputes, um, and things along those lines. And so that, when it comes to the military's kind of cute sense of, of, of kind of pragmatism and, and, and really kind of they, they can frankly care less about much of Egyptian civil society or Egyptian political parties what the Salafi da'wah has to offer to them is placate some of the tribal tensions uh, uh, across Egypt, which, of course, because of their position on the coup, kind of undermines their position to be able to play that mediator role. Um, And, of course, when it comes to the political party, if it stays, I think it's some sort of a positive indicator. But we also have to deal with this very uh, interesting dynamic where, frankly, uh, I, I, Yasser Burhami, who of course uh, effectively the leader of the Salafi Da'wah you know, I've spoken to him a few times but I'm actually planning to actually call him uh, this week to ask a very serious question about whether or not he he intends to dissolve the party uh, because that is actually a scenario where the Noor Party uh, will decide to dissolve itself just so that the Salafi Da'wah uh, can stay. And so the military or CC is not going to look for Noor Party for votes it's simply going to Look at them to see if they're going to be on board with Al-Azhar, with whatever plans that they have to, um, you know, moderate Egypt's uh, mosques, which, of course, is very kind of contradictory, considering what the that was all about. Um, and also to see if they can still be a reliable partner when it comes to ma- uh, managing tribal relations in some of the periphery governorates. Muhabarat, um, I'll leave that yeah, to Yeah, I'll leave Sam. that to
0: Sam, and then I'm going to ask for... We can, we're running out of time, so I'm going to take two or three questions at the same time. So,
1: Well, very briefly, I'd say that um, the Egyptian state was nowhere close to the Syrian or Libyan or even the Tunisian model for, in that sense. Egypt was much more an open society. The level of work by the intelligence internally is much less. I, I assume you're more referring to the Amni dawla the state security, because the Egyptian intelligence as an organization was much less involved in internal affairs. Its role was much more in mediating between Hamas and uh, Fatah in, in foreign involvements. Um, the Egyptian state security has, is a reflection of the country. There's no reason for people to believe that uh, Egypt cannot feed its people, but Its security service is working perfectly well. It was suffering from the same problems of the bureaucracy. They had informants who were were writing reports that were very shallow, that did not reflect reflect reality. They failed to predict a revolution. They miserably failed to handle it. So we're not really talking about an all-powerful state security system. It's very Egyptian in this sense. It's, it's weak, it's, it suffers from the same problems as the rest of society as a well. whole. And in this sense, I think it's um, important to note how Sisi views the 25th of January. He gives lip service to the idea that it's a revolution and great, and he certainly welcomes the removal of the Gamal Mubarak inheritance scenario. He buys into the corruption narrative against Mubarak. That's all there. But he also views it as an attempt to weaken the Egyptian state, i.e. he buys into the general conspiracy theory, the Western role in building the democracy movement in Egypt, the interference by Hamas or others, all sorts of conspiracies. And for that regard, his his description of the problem with Mubarak's state is that it was too weak, i.e. Sisi is not attempting to rebuild Mubarak's state. He's trying to build something totally different, much more forceful, much more engaged in the daily lives of people, guiding them into the right direction where no segment of society, church, civil society, media is outside the realm of control. Again, success is a very different matter.
0: Mm. Uh, I'm just going to take two um, questions very quickly. This gentleman up here, the gentleman in the back, and this gentleman right here. So, sir, if you could start. And please, I'm um, sorry to do this too, but you just keep it short because we're about well, five minutes. I, I had a, a very time. long
3: list, but thank you very much. Uh, some questions were already asked. Could you talk for a second about the Constitution? Is it effective? I mean, the one that, moved, uh, that uh, Morsi rammed through and sort of uh, uh, took away any judiciary rights, number one. Okay, well, why,
0: well, why don't we leave it at that because I have two more people that are any questions? from. Thank you, though. Sir? I actually, I'm sorry, Rachel. I'm, while you're on your way back, this gentleman over here, so it's not to make you go back and forth.
5: Nice. Hi. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. Great. I'm happy to learn that CC is not the star Yankee pitcher th- for the moment. That's on the disabled list and so on, but he seems <laughs> up and moving. So we'll keep the name deft. I'm calling, but you had a question on your li- on your sheet here that really got my interest. Donors from the oil-rich countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab, can delay the endeavor, but but unless the country can address basic issues like slashing subsidies, in government and private industry. The Egyptian economy is in trouble. Quick, quick couple one. What's going on? Please,
0: just just one question, sir. I'm sorry.
5: Just ask trust one me, question. Trust me. I'm from New York. I've been doing it real fast. Uh, three, but there's going to be one question. Ethiopia, what's going on when they're trying to steal the water? Two, what's going on now quickly in Egypt? Is it surviving? What's happening with private investment? And three, does the U.S. play a role, particularly when it's holding up its investment for democratic reasons? Thank you.
0: Just answer one of those questions.
2: Uh, Adam Yafirman. Hudson Institute intern at the Center for Political Military Analysis. You talked about the commitment of the members of the Muslim Brotherhood and what they've had to go through. Can you talk about where the uh, security forces in the military recruit from and the kind of commitment that their members have? Thank you.
0: Uh, Mokhtar?
2: I'll, I'll be very brief, and I'll just take the, the last question. Okay. Um, really kind of one one line answer to that. This is an apparatus that disintegrated in less than one day on January 28, 2011. Um, And it has not recovered since, simply because upwards to what, 90 or so police stations or more were burned simultaneously. Very little commitment, and frankly, can care less uh, about what happens outside of their uh, immediate uh, circle.
1: Okay, briefly on all of them. The Constitution, Morsi's Constitution, was a complete disaster, of course, for religious freedom, for freedom in general. Um, It had many articles that Islamized the state completely, redefinition of the role of Sharia, a blasphemy clause in that Constitution that was very problematic. Um, The new Constitution that has been put in force on the front of um, religious freedom is at least better. Now, what will that mean in implementation? We have no idea yet. We have worrying signs. The uh, dependence of CC on the security forces, trying to build them up, again, means uh, return to security practices in dealing with citizens, whether it's their role in uh, not addressing the problem of sectarian attacks on Christians, whether, and Mukhtar referred to, to, uh, to the security force lack of work in general, um they're whether in their um resorting to torture in dealing with petty crime because they do, aren't capable and don't know how to investigate any of it. So so that's very worrying. So we have a on paper the Egyptian constitution is better than the Morsi one. What does that mean in practice? Papers haven't meant a lot in Egypt lately. Um the Ethiopia, or the military recruitment in general, it's, the conscripts come from the whole uh, population. Any Egyptian who's, who has a brother um, and is of military age is recruited, whether in the military, the lesser educated people go into the uh, security services. Of course, there's also the, the recruitment of people that go through the military college and the, the police college and become officers. The Ethiopia question, I think that's a serious challenge to Egypt. Uh, it affects the water. Um, the country's dependence on the Nile cannot be overstated. Uh, Egypt has failed miserably until now to have an answer to how it will deal with this uh, problem. Morsi famously had the whole political class of the country sit together and in front of live TV and threaten to bomb Ethiopia didn't go very well with the Ethiopians or with the image of Egypt in general. But until now we don't have a coherent policy and I'm not sure what the country's policy would be towards that. The um, economy, uh, Egypt's economy is in a state of disaster. It's living over money that's come from the Gulf. Um, This is both true of the direct lack of direct investment, the tourism uh, sector, specific sectors have been really hurt by the revolution and what's going on. And it's also true of um, Egypt's inability to pay for its growing energy needs. We've had power cuts under Morsi. They helped uh, instigate the uh, protest against him, and power cuts are likely to increase dramatically during the summer Mm. because Egypt simply cannot afford to pay for the... Uh, oil companies to get the oil to make or the gas companies to make the power stations operate. Egypt owns um, BGBP, the major oil companies, about $6 billion that it hasn't paid. It makes those companies not very keen on providing the oil and gas at the moment, to say the least. So the economy generally is in a state of problem. It's, it's living over the money coming from the Gulf, which provides a safety net for now where this leads how long will the gulf be able to provide the money this is not a small country We're talking about 90 million people that's an open question
0: that would probably be a, that would probably be a panel in itself what happens yeah. to egypt after the saudis decide to stop paying <laughs> um, and that will be a dire moment indeed in the meantime i wanted to thank you muhtar sam and thank you all for being here thank, thank you very kindly. <laughs>